Today's Animal Spirits Talking Book is brought to you by Fidelity Digital Assets. On September 19th, 11 a.m. Eastern, Fidelity will be having their next edition of the Value Exchange. Where they're going to discuss their latest research report, Ethereum Investment Thesis, Ethereum's Potential as a Digital Money and a Yield-Bearing Asset, which we're going to talk about on the show today. If you want to learn more, we're going to have a link in our show notes. You can also go to FidelityDigitalAssets.com to learn more. Welcome to Animal Spirits, a show about markets, life, and investing. Join Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson as they talk about what they're reading, writing, and watching. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. All right, so it's Wednesday, August 30th. Uh, on Tuesday, big news hit the crypto industry. GBTC, the, the, the trust, not an ETF that has been at the center of a lot of ups and downs over the years inside of the crypto industry, won their case against the SEC. Which is which is notable. You, I, uh, I think just the idea of an asset manager suing the SEC and winning is uh, something that most people probably would have thought of unlikely. Although I guess in this case, a lot of industry insiders did actually expect this outcome. But definitely a watershed moment. People say the caveat is it doesn't necessarily mean an ETF is for sure. The SEC could I guess try to fight back, but it sounds like at this point it's inevitable. Yeah, and, and it, was, it wasn't like the court ruled uh, against the SEC and said, oh, yep, there's an ETF coming uh, November 1st. Right. Because of where we are in the cycle, in like the crypto winter or whatever, where the, the speculative excess has been totally wrung out and there's not much talk about it anymore, I'm really curious to see what this means. Because, I mean, if, if the ETF would have come out when Bitcoin was at 70,000 or whatever, wherever it peaked. Yeah, it would have. I yeah. think the the it would have been a way different scenario than where it is at 27 or wherever it is when it when it happened. There was a, a little bump in the price, but not a huge bump. So I'm really going to be interested to see how big one or multiple of these Bitcoin ETFs will be once it happens. Yeah. And again, short term, but whatever. It's, it's giving back a little bit today. So yeah, we'll see. Definitely interesting news. All right. Don't want to step into it from the tutorial. We got into this with, with the guys at Fidelity Digital Assets. So with that, here's our conversation with Jack and Ramin. We're joined today by Jack Newrider. Jack is the Senior Digital Analyst at Fidelity Digital Assets. We're also joined by Ramin Big Deli Azari. Ramin is the Director of Product at Fidelity Digital Assets. Good to have you guys back on the show. We're going to start today talking about the elephant in the room, which was the GBTC ruling. Uh, this is today is Wednesday, August 30th. Before we get to that, Jack. Describe for us, this came in an interesting time because the, the, the vibes, the overall sentiment, almost apathy, it feels like towards crypto. I don't even know if it's a winter or what you would call it, but it seems like there was very little going on. So before, prior to, to the announcement on Tuesday, how would you describe, maybe with some data if you have it, the state of, of crypto? Yeah, I think you, you kind of uh, summed it up there a little bit. It's not a whole lot going on. I mean, you could say that sentiment is poor, but I don't even know if I would say it's poor. It's just the the only people left are the people you know that have been here for a while, for the most part. You know, uh, 
broadly summarizing that, of course, there are you know net new faces here and there, but it's a lot of like people like to call it a PVP type environment, player versus player, where it's the same capital, you know, sort of sloshing back and forth alongside you know some of these protocols based on you know small things happening in, in different corners of crypto markets. But it's not, you know, you, you don't see necessarily like a huge new use case that brings in a whole slew of new users. So what I would say is that's like kind of classic crypto market cycle. And what you saw back in like 2018 after the, the drawdown in the first half of 2018, from mid-2018 through 2020, it was kind of just a, I don't want to say boring as the word. There's there's stuff happening underneath the surface, but from the you know the traditional asset manager that's just looking at crypto, they're probably not spending much time paying attention to it because it's not making you know a, a bunch of news headlines the way that it is during a bull market. And so low low volatility, uh, you do lose some of the correlation during these time periods because you know traditional asset managers aren't as deep into the space or aren't paying as much attention to the space, but it's not necessarily for like great reason, right? Cause you're not seeing a bunch of outperformance from crypto assets. Um, so it's, it's kind of, you know, your, your classic bear market. Ramin, we have, we got a question from a listener actually earlier this week said they've been kind of following the ETF stuff and saying, Hey, I've never put any money into Bitcoin or crypto before, but with an ETF coming, I'm starting to think about it more for something like my IRA. And their whole thesis was, uh, I'll read here, they, they said, we're thinking uh, an ETF would be make sense because it would be considerably more mainstream and therefore maybe entice more investors to take the plunge and possibly drive up the price. Obviously, with the caveat that we never know what's priced into these things, uh, what do you think the expectations are? Because obviously, we saw the the stuff from the court hit and, and the price went up. It didn't go up a ton. It went up, I don't know, 6 to 10% or something. But how... How much do you think, how much money do you think coming into this space is, has been priced in or is that impossible to know? It's pretty impossible to know exactly how much has been priced in, but I think um, more theoretically, the offering of an ETF does exactly what is being proposed, provides a really easy entry point, a uh, really efficient entry point for those that have, you know, existing access to broker dealers and, and through their advisors, through retirement accounts. In today's, in today's environment, um, because of the regulatory frameworks, you see that there are distinct providers that have been set up specifically to offer services for digital assets. So for someone to come and access digital assets, they need to onboard to a completely new experience, um, exchange or custodian, access liquidity through them. And that's just generally a burden or a hurdle for those to get into the space. And so I think the general sentiment is that with an ETF offering, it just becomes much more seamless. You go through your traditional channels, you get uh, with any other ETF, you have the options of different types of accounts that you can access. So you have more tax advantaged accounts, which generally with the optionality, more seamless opportunity to access the asset class, you would imagine that, that more money would flow in. Um, you know, in terms of exactly how much is priced in, I think it's very difficult to say. I'd say, you know, expect the market to be fairly efficient and such that, you know, the, so much of this would be priced in by now. But I think it's just very uh, difficult to say right now, given what we're seeing in terms of activity, uh, exactly what the result will be in the price. Michael, you had a number. What was it? What did you say? $100 billion eventually within a certain... T- what was your number? Oh, uh, so so I threw out $100 billion in the first year and Balchuna sent me straight. He's like, dude, GLD, <laughs> GLD has $55 billion in assets. So maybe I was a bit optimistic, but I will. I, I'll, I'll, I'll. Let's say. Let's say I was over optimistic by two. Let's say fifty billion dollars. Although I don't know what 
How much? How, do you guys know how much are in the ETFs in Canada? I think it's only a billion or two. I don't know if it's a great proxy, but you got to fact check me. But all right. Well, so we got the news yesterday, and uh, Bitcoin underneath popped, although eh, not like crazy. I don't know. It's five six percent. GBTC, of course, the discount now it's substantially. I think from like twenty five to seventeen or, or something something thereabouts, and. The, the judges ruled three to zero. I don't know if the SEC is going to appeal. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. I don't know how any of this works. But what they said was like, they used words like uh, the, the SEC was arbitrary and capricious in their ruling and that you have to treat like cases as like. And of course, the futures Bitcoin ETF, which currently exists, is not too dissimilar from the spot Bitcoin that they're wanting. And then going beyond that, there's a leveraged futures ETF, which is I mean, I just, you know, that just sounds a little, a little wild to me, but be that as it may, it sounds as if a spot Bitcoin ETF is on the horizon. And this has major ramifications because I would suspect that pick a number, 90% of all people that want to open up an account and buy physical Bitcoin or ETH or whatever have probably already done that, right? There's been like several speculative manias. And if you haven't done it at this point, you're probably waiting for an easier way to do it because it's still it still could be a bit a bit cumbersome. So this this has to change the dynamics going forward. Do you think that the ETF is going to simultaneously kill demand or dampen demand for the actual coins, but also bring more people in? And if so, sorry for the rambling question. And if so, like, where do we, th- what sort of impacts do we think this is going to have on the overall market? I don't know about dampened demand for the actual coins. I think there's a there's an explicit reason why, like, people would utilize the spot Bitcoin ETF as opposed to going through the entire process. You kind of named it out of all the operational and other considerations that go along with creating a separate relationship for a small portion of your traditional portfolio. So maybe for for Bitcoin, you would see you know, flight to just a, a simple ETF-like product as the crypto industry is trying to bring crypto to traditional investors rather than historically, it's been traditional investors have to go out of their way explicitly to come to the crypto industry to make an allocation. And so this would be like a huge move towards bringing crypto to traditional investors in a way that wasn't previously possible. But it is at the moment anyways, only Bitcoin exposure here. And so I think for a lot of traditional investors, is that enough? Pro- you know, it's, it's an easy way to get exposure to what makes up 50% of crypto's market cap. I think you can make that argument. Um, but at the same time, you know, the ancillary uh, services and offerings that custodians can offer don't exist in products and you know, probably won't for, for the time being, which is you know, the fact that you have proof of stake assets, you have you know, alternative assets that aren't going to sit inside of uh, these products, at least at the moment anyways. Ramin, do you think, I'll use the word Bitcoin here not, not, you know, let's just focus on Bitcoin for a second and not ETH or any of the other stuff. Can Bitcoin be an asset class if the use case that, that started this whole thing never really materializes? And that being mostly Heyman's use case is what you're referring to? Yeah, just, just self-sovereign, non-censorable. Uh, if, if people never really use Bitcoin in the way it was intended, 
can it still stand on its own as, a, as, a, as an asset class for investors in their portfolios? Could it be like millennial or Gen Z gold? Yeah, I mean, I was going to say the ETF is going to be a, a monumental shift, right, in the, the kind of dynamics of how people access the asset class. Um, but Bitcoin is very much a global asset. And so you think about those that do not have access to traditional broker dealers, right? I think one of the primary use cases initially was you know, banking the unbanked as well, right? So those that do not have access to traditional financial services products, accessing Bitcoin as an alternative really as a store of value, so where to maintain that value outside of kind of local currencies. Um, so I mean, that, that use case still stands firm, right? So the same people would not have access necessarily easily to this ETF product, right? There's not just the US ETF, there's been one launched in Europe now, um, one, there's some in Canada as well. So I think there will be more and more products available on a global basis, but I think the use case still stands. I think people will continue to hold this, the spot physical dematerialized Bitcoin. Um, and you need to think about it for you know, real use cases. So if you do want to use it for a payments use case, I think that we, we haven't seen as much activity, I think, as expected early days of Bitcoin, but that's still a use case. And then, you know, in terms of really store of value on a global basis, I think that, you know, that thesis still stands. Finance people are so stuck in the past because we still call it a coin and we still call it physical. Shouldn't it be called digital Bitcoin? <laughs> exactly, yeah. Just to add to some of what Ramin was saying, with Bitcoin, there's basically two use cases, right? It's censorship-resistant payments and it's an aspiring store of value asset. There's only going to be 21 million of them and it's ruled by you know, this decentralized governance process that would have to determine that there should be more than 21 million coins and like that's not in you know, the, the broader consensus interest. So the, those two properties still exist even if you know, spot Bitcoin ETFs become large holders of Bitcoin and that's the way that uh, investors that live in large developed countries allocate to the space. Right? Maybe they allocate not because it's a, this censorship-resistant payment network, but because it's a you know, store value asset and the way that they get access to that is via you know, an investment product with a, you know, a custodian on the end that they're you know, trusting. But that doesn't take away the fact that people in emerging countries can utilize it as a payment network or can utilize scaling technology on top of it. And so just because you know, one of the value propositions is more important to a certain set of investors doesn't take away you know, the other use case that exists. And that's a really fair point. Not, you know, as, as an American, we forget that not everybody has the global reserve currency uh, in their pocket. So that's a really, really good and often overlooked point. Uh, there is a, a great irony that one of the largest holders of Bitcoin in a couple of years could be a large traditional financial asset manager, whether it's, you know, iShares Fidelity, whoever. Uh, so I, I don't, you know, whatever. Um, well, it's not the result of those people looking at existing payment providers and saying like, oh, this is so much better for payments, right? It's more the result of hey, look at global sovereign debt levels and look at what the likely outcome is, right? Is, our, you know, is fiscal policy going to become more restrictive? Are we going to have austerity and less spending? Or are we going to have debasement in a central bank that monetizes debt over time? You know, if you think that that's more likely, then maybe you look at Bitcoin as this, this aspiring store of value asset. And I think that's the framework that most large investors that are looking at the space, they see the value prop through that potential store of value asset. Well, if, if Bitcoin has an ETF approved, I would assume the Ethereum ETF would not be too far behind. And uh, the way that it was always explained to me is that Ethereum 
is is kind of taking the building blocks of Bitcoin and building on it. And it was kind of like this is if you could have invested in like the Internet when it was first started, like the network of it, you're investing in like the computer network or however it is, however you want to describe it. Where do we stand in terms of Ethereum? Because it, it does seem like Bitcoin is kind of pigeonholed into this store of value, you know, censorship resistant, all that. And Ethereum was supposed to be, okay, we're going to build on that. And now you can do something on this network. So where do we stand with Ethereum these days? So I, I think, again, and we probably mentioned this before, is Ethereum added this idea of smart contracts and programmability that we could have other use cases outside of simply peer-to-peer payments and potentially being you know, this alternative monetary system that can serve as a, a, a store value. And with it comes this you know, whole idea that if you can build applications on top of it, could we you know, put other assets on top of this network and create you know, more transparent banking and financial markets infrastructure? Or could we you know, decentralize some of the, you know, the idea of like content ownership on the web? You hear this idea of like Web three and and taking out you know sort of the middleman in, in some of these situations. It is necessarily more speculative, especially today, given that you know if you want to bring real world assets onto these chains, the regulatory environment hasn't really given you a lot of clarity and reassurance that you know, your token is a claim on a real asset. Right? And like large capital can't really interact with these networks necessarily on chain because of you know, certain KYC AML laws that you know, don't factor in the fact that if you interact with a decentralized application, you could be interacting with uh, you know, a, a somebody money laundering or something like that. Right? I mean, it's an extreme scenario, but that prevents a lot of you know, would-be allocators or users of these networks from using them. And so with Ethereum, what I like to say is like it is a, a technology platform. It is necessarily more speculative in its use cases at the moment. It's also five, six years younger than Bitcoin. And so we have to kind of think about it from a, a timeline perspective and where Bitcoin was five or six years ago, because that's kind of where Ethereum is at the moment. And then that changes you know, sort of the risk reward outcome, right? There's there's probably more risk embedded in it because the use cases are more speculative, but also at the same time that could, you know, have a, you know, a higher payout rationally. Yeah, I think just to add on that, you know, Bitcoin, the use case for Bitcoin is Bitcoin versus Ethereum is a foundational technology that creates a decentralized uh, computing network essentially where you can build the use cases on top of it. Right. And so the collection of these decentralized applications then create value in the network. And so it's dependent on the the delivery of those use cases, the proliferation of those. Um, and so I think we're seeing some interesting use cases come to life now, but it is has been a little bit slow. We're seeing most of the activity in world really DeFi activity. So decentralized financial applications, um, tokenization of money with stable coins. I think there's n number of use cases that have been um have been looked at, but but it has taken some time. And so as as Jack mentions, right, the foundational technology is out there. They're continuing to upgrade that technology in order to make it more scalable, to really think about the future use cases and make sure that the the platform itself can handle those. Um, but there's more work to do. The platform's not done. And I don't know if it ever will be, you know, quote unquote done. Um, but the more we see use cases build on top of it, uh, the more use there will be of the network and therefore kind of the value grows of, of the underlying technology. DeFi has not, I, I don't think, correct me if I'm wrong, taken off to the way to the extent that people might have hoped. Uh, also interesting to note that uh, MasterCard is hitting an all-time high right now. Visa is not far behind. So the traditional 
payment rails have, you know, they're they're fairly entrenched, and I think it's going to be maybe more difficult to disrupt than than people might have thought. As far as the Ethereum stuff goes, and and the smart contracts and the Legos, which was a good analogy, um, do you think a lot of the wind was sucked out of that space because of the proliferation of AI, just in terms of where capital and talent is flowing these days? Yeah, I mean, I think talent has been driven out of all kind of spaces towards AI, right? I think you see some of the valuations and the activity from some of those AI-focused companies. Um, and yeah, I think there's just a lot of excitement there. It's truly foundational technology that could change the way that we live. I think just like it has any other industry, it's it's, it's impacted blockchain uh, developers. I don't know that I would say that it has a direct impact specifically to DeFi that I've seen, unless, Jack, you have any data that, that uh, says differently. No, I, I, I don't. But um, what I would say also is while crypto is easy to look at uh, price volatility because it trades 24-7, 365, at the same time, these are like networks that are trying to take core primitives that exist in centralized finance and then recreate them in an on-chain transparent way that anybody can get access to. And when you say like, what's sustainable, like ultimate success of DeFi, it's in my mind anyways, 50 years from now, we have a more transparent financial system where you know, anybody can get access to it or they could go through a, a third party to get access to it. But underneath the surface, the entire system you know, operates in a, you know, a, a more fair, transparent way. And so if that's the ultimate goal, like, sure, we are always going to measure things on, on the surface of where do prices go and what is usage over a, you know, a six-month time period. But you're not going to change the entire you know, financial services industry and the way that people interact with it over a you know, one, two, three-year time horizon. And like if we go back, you know, Uniswap 2018, Aave, same time period, like the core primitives of DeFi, of trading, borrowing and lending, the, the true adoption of like stable coins in any meaningful way, it was in like the 2017 to 2019 time period. And so those have existed for like four years with the idea of like making a, a more transparent version of the existing financial system without true like regulatory clarity. It's just the big picture is of like what could make this sustainably successful won't happen over the micro six, 12 months. It will happen over the, you know, the span of 10, 20, 30 years if it's successful. We talked to both of you almost a year ago now, I guess it was last fall, uh, in Boston, and, and you were saying, listen, in the crypto winter, I think, had already kind of begun, or at least the pretty nasty bear market. And, and you said, we're seeing an exodus of people from the space. They're, they're coming, and, and Fidelity is trying to bring some of those people in. Where do we stand in terms of, of, of that, in terms of uh, people becoming available, interesting, smart people in this space that are kind of up for grabs? We've done a lot of hiring in the last... Um few years. Uh, so we've grown pretty substantially in the, in the digital asset space at Fidelity. And I think we'll, what we saw is that the market was incredibly tight for a while, right? Through kind of the, the bull runs that, that happened, I guess it was about two years ago now. Um, it was very difficult to bring people in. I think there were a lot of new ventures that were starting up. There was a lot of excitement. What we saw though is that we, you know, that, that changed a bit and we were able to do a lot of hiring. We've been able to get a lot of talent from outside in the, in the market. And then also what I'd say is even internal to Fidelity, as years have passed, people have been able to explore the space themselves and 
built a level of expertise such that when we bring them in, bring them into the digital asset space, they come with a level of knowledge that, um, that they're able to gain on their own, but you know, it's, it's very valuable to us. And so I think just as time has passed, you've seen that, you know, it's, there's just a greater population of folks that have actually dealt in the space, either on a personal level or professionally. I think it's been a little easier to kind of find, find that talent and market recently. Of course, yeah, still fairly tight, but has, has, uh, become a bit more favorable. Can we get back to Jack, you were talking about earlier, the case for Bitcoin on the macro front. I think it's really interesting. The interest expense on our debt, I think is going to exceed, if not already exceeds the, our defense spending budget, which is, you know, a, a ludicrously large number. So uh, whether there's debasement in our currency, which of course there always is, like to me, just th- that is a reasonably uh, objective bull case for for an alternative store of value like like Bitcoin. And yet I, you could never really draw one-to-one conclusions like, oh, Bitcoin is up today because people are afraid of the, the federal deficit. Like it's very yeah. difficult to draw those direct lines. But are you surprised at how Bitcoin has been acting over the last, I don't know, couple of quarters? Not necessarily, because if you look at like what's the traditional store of value asset, if we call it cash or if we call it fixed income instruments, they've arguably become more attractive over the past you know, six, 12 months, right? Because cash isn't trash if it pays you know, five and a quarter percent, give or take, and inflation is, I don't know, 3% over the past year. I mean, that's a, that is a positive carry on your cash position. Whereas before it was, you know, you were getting paid nothing on cash and inflation was, you know, one and a half, two percent and so it was, a, it was a drag on your portfolio, right? It was a melting ice cube, as you know, some in the Bitcoin space uh, would say. And now that's not necessarily the case in the short term. But again, you, you mentioned this whole idea of like, okay, well, what does interest expense become, right? And when does that start to become problematic? And who's going to buy all of that debt? That's the big picture that, again, on a micro, you know, six, 12-month time period, Sure, can we you know paper over uh, larger interest expense? Yes, but it becomes problematic on a five and ten year time horizon if we're rolling over all of this debt at far higher rates with uh, you know debt to GDP at one hundred and twenty percent. The only other time you you had that in U.S. history was uh, post World War II, which was a period of financial repression, negative real interest rates. Well, Jack, you've I know you've written a piece in the past trying to value Bitcoin. Do you take things like real interest rates into account? Because that's always kind of been the thing I've heard for gold is if, if real interest rates are rising, that's bad for gold because gold doesn't really pay a dividend. Obviously, there's always other other variables at stake here. But is that something that, that makes sense to you? If, if real interest rates are rising, that that would be, uh, should be bad for crypto, at least a headwind, I guess? Yeah, so there, there's sort of, uh, I would argue, kind of like two elements here, right? There's the macro things that like ultimately Bitcoin's not controlling, that's like the extrinsic variables. And then there's the, the intrinsic variables of like Bitcoin itself, its supply schedule, there's only 21 million. And then it, you know, there's a, it, it posing itself based on its monetary properties against you know, traditional monetary assets, fiat currencies, uh, fixed income instruments, gold, precious metals. And if you, if you look at like the adoption curve, this is what I you know, talked about or wrote about in, in uh, the piece on valuing Bitcoin, we know Bitcoin's supply schedule is inelastic or irresponsive to changes in demand, right? It just follows along 
it's it's 21 million supply curve that halves every four years its issuance rate. Its supply or its demand curve uh, looks like a technology adoption curve, like cell phone adoption, like internet adoption. Urian had done some work on this a couple of years ago. Um, other folks in the space as well, and it still does look like that. But the rate of adoption, if we look at like address growth, has decayed during this bear market. That's kind of what you would expect, right? Because it's very cyclical. You have like above expectation rates of adoption when prices are up, and then you have below expected rates of adoption compared to prior technologies when prices are down. And so the, the long-term picture of thinking about valuing Bitcoin is supply and demand, surely. And then you have this short-term variable of changes in the macro environment, which at the moment, I would argue, is a headwind. And actually, I believe Urian has done some stuff recently where he's trying to tie in real changes in interest rates or real interest rates alongside uh, the adoption curve. So like put, putting those two variables together. But those are like the, the primary drivers, right? Of whether Bitcoin is attractive as an alternative store of value. And then over time, whether you know, the technology is being adopted. Yeah, I think, I think it's, it's interesting because the paradox that is causing uh, debt to increase is also what might be driving investors away from Bitcoin. If you can just simply collect five plus percent on your cash, uh, that's a really attractive alternative to the ultimate alternative store value. Yeah, no, I, I would totally agree. I think the the place where I think that starts to break down is, is that sustainable over the long term? And I would argue it's not without like a, a central bank potentially monetizing that debt in a, you know, in a roundabout way, right? You couldn't, you know, if you have QT at the same time as you have rising interest rates, which we have had at the moment, right? In this very micro six, 12 month period of time, can you do that for five years? And with the system so highly leveraged, I guess I would make the case that there's a high probability that you won't be able to, right? That the, the phrase of like something will break, right? Or some sort of policy change will have to take place. And when it does, what will it be, right? Will it be lower interest rates? Will it be uh, quantitative easing? Like all of that plays into the idea of this alternative store value. Uh, if, if you see dovishness would probably perform well. And the argument is a leveraged system is necessarily more fragile to like any rate of change in like monetary and fiscal policy. And so at, at some point here, like, is there a high probability that you can stay hawkish for the next five years? I would argue no, in which case that is kind of the, the pitch for, for investing in Bitcoin. Again, anything can happen, of course, but I think if you th look at the probability and likelihood of outcomes, it, it probably favors, uh, at, at some point, easier monetary policy. So you guys recently talked to, to a friend of ours, Tyrone Ross, on, on a webinar about some new solutions for advisors. And I think that's been one of the hurdles for advisors is just finding trusted partners. So what can you tell us about that? Yeah, I think as, as we talked about just, just earlier um, in the pod about ETFs, what we've heard from advisors is that one of the biggest hurdles for them to to provide services for their clients is an easy access point. And so, as I mentioned today, uh, any advisor that wants to give their clients access, they need to go and open up a new relationship um, with a custodian um, or an exchange uh, and be able to kind of offer these services, which is completely discreet from managing the rest of their portfolio. There's not integrations with aggregator reporting services, et cetera. And so what we've, what we've done recently is this summer, we launched Fidelity Crypto for Wealth Managers. 
And so Fidelity Crypto for Wealth Managers is essentially an integration of the Fidelity digital assets platform that we've been running since 2018 and distribution of that through the Fidelity Institutional Wealthscape platform. And so what that offers is that clients of the Fidelity Institutional that have access to the Wealthscape platform to manage their clients' portfolios and securities, the brokerage, can now open up an account through that portal to Fidelity Digital Assets, open up an account that allows their clients to um, to make allocations to uh, to Bitcoin, to Ether, um, and to really access the platform that we built and have been running for for years now. And so the big the big play here is that we want to give our clients optionality. And so we want you can get access to Fidelity Digital Assets directly, or you can access it through Fidelity Crypto for Wealth Managers through your Wealthscape portal. But it's really an aggregation, right? So allow our clients to have really an easy way to access the products um, and aggregate that experience across their entire portfolio they're managing. What sort of integrations exist with uh, with an advisor's tech stack? Is are there any at this point? They no no direct integrations with the advisor's tech stack. Uh, we're working on what we're working on is uh, integrations with reporting solutions that they likely use. Which um, so I think that that will come in time. But otherwise, you know, direct integration all services through uh, through Wellscape. You guys are hosting an event on September 19th, talking about your latest research report, Ethereum Investment Thesis, Ethereum's potential as digital money and a yield-bearing asset. What can, for people that are interested in tuning in, is that for is that for Fidelity clients only or advisors only or who, who could access that? I think as far as I know, anybody, anybody can uh, access it. Uh, I, th- I think we're you know, sort of posing the event intended for advisors, uh, but you know, anybody that wants to is able to, to sign up for that. So maybe this goes against my thing about uh, the real interest rate and how gold doesn't have a, a yield. So maybe just explain how, how Ethereum could be a yield-bearing asset then. Yeah, so last year, last September, Ethereum transition, I mean, I guess that's almost a year now. It feels like yesterday. Uh, Ethereum transitioned from a proof-of-work network, kind of similar to how Bitcoin operates with, with miners, that are uh, involved in the governance process to a proof-of-stake network in which uh, anybody who has 32 ETH or wants to you know, delegate a portion of their ETH to somebody that can create a you know, around 32 ETH lot uh, can stake those Ethereum and earn a yield for helping uh, run the network, essentially, secure the network and ideally decentralize the network if you know, enough people are, are running uh, validators themselves. And... Ethereum becomes a yield-bearing asset because if you think of uh, miners in a proof-of-work network, well, how do they get paid? They get paid through an inflation subsidy on Bitcoin's network, and they also get paid through transaction fees when you know, people want to transact. If a lot of people want to transact, there's only so many transactions uh, that can fit inside of a, a single block. And so fees rise as there's more demand for block space and fall as there's less demand for block space. Similarly, uh, on this end, instead of paying the miners for uh, for allowing you to transact on the network, you pay you know who's in charge of the governance process uh, and security of the network for Ethereum now under proof of stake. It's the validators, so it's people that are staking their ETH. And so ultimately, uh, ETH has become a yield-bearing asset where if you hold ETH, you have the optionality to stake the asset and earn a yield for doing so. And that yield is directly correlated to the usefulness of applications on the network and the number of users that are actually willing to pay fees to transact on the network. 
Jack and Ramin, this was great as always. Thank you so much for coming on. We appreciate the time. We'll link to the event in the show notes, some research stuff in the show notes. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Ben.